0: You're listening to Irreverent Bible Talk, a podcast that's not your grandma's Bible study. Unless your grandma happens to be really, really cool. Listener discretion is advised if you object to bad words, women preachers, or terrible puns. Welcome back to Irreverent Bible Talk. I'm Josh, I'm an audio guy, and talking about Nero in the last episode makes me want to learn how to fiddle.
1: And I'm Jenny, I'm a Lutheran pastor, and I'm very excited about the Golden City in Revelation.
0: On this episode, we're continuing our three-part discussion on the apocalypse, focusing this time on the book of Revelation.
1: So strap in, grab a beer, a cup of coffee, a mocktail, or the beverage of your choice, And join us as we discover how the Bible is more fascinating and more complicated than you might expect.
0: The audience may not know this, but we are recording this episode four minutes after we completed our last one.
1: Yeah, we're going back to back today. Yep,
0: I love it because it makes my life a little bit easier to edit. Mm -hmm. What are you drinking right now?
1: Uh, Yeah, so last episode, uh, which as Josh said, we just recorded. I was working on a cup of coffee and now I am drinking water because... Like most millennials in this country, I am chronically dehydrated.
0: That's a fair choice. It's probably why I always have dry mouth.
1: Yeah. Uh, how about you?
0: So I finished my coffee, and as a good millennial that's trying to keep themselves awake because I suffer from insomnia, I've now switched to cola because, you know, why would I drink water?
1: So, we are gonna really dive into Revelation now. Uh, we talked a lot about kind of background and history in the last one, and now we're gonna get into all the weird shit that you have read or heard about or seen on very cringy CW drama uh, from the book of Revelation. I love Supernatural. Like, I just. It's
0: I, such a good show. I
1: wanna state that for the record. It's very dumb, and I like it very much.
0: It's so good. Jenny and I actually play a. We, would, we finished the campaign, but we were playing a TTRPG where it was basically just episodes of Supernatural.
1: Yeah, the game, the game system is called Monster of the Week. You should look it up if you're into tabletop role-playing games. It's very fun.
0: It's amazing. So for this episode, Jenny, I actually brought my little milk duds, and I'm going to break my rule about not eating because I am excited and interested in what you're going to give us.
1: All right. I love that. I don't love Milk Duds, but you do you.
0: Uh, it's a chocolate fix.
1: Fair enough. First thing I thought we'd start out with is the name of the book. Always a good place to start, especially because people say it wrong all the time. It is not Revelations, plural. It is just Revelation. The word for Revelation uh, in Greek, which is what the New Testament was written in, I think in our Daniel episode, I said that everything in the Bible was written in Hebrew except Daniel. That was clearly not the New Testament. The New Testament's written in Greek. Anyway, in Greek, the word for revelation is apocalypsis, which is the source of our word apocalypse. So when we hear apocalypse, we think, destruction, fire, end of the world, but Apocalypse literally, at its its root meaning, is about something being revealed, right? Something being uncovered, something coming into view that was previously hidden. So that's kind of the, the setting for this book, is like, this is a revealing, this is a uncovering of these cosmic kind of events that are not necessarily known to everybody living through them on earth. So that's that's the title of the book, The Revelation to John. It's attributed to John of Patmos. There's a lot of Johns in the New Testament and it is very hard to keep them straight. So this one is not John the Baptist, not John the disciple, brother of James, probably not the John who wrote the Gospel of John, probably not the John who wrote the letters of John, different John. Uh, John of Patmos, and he starts out the book by basically saying, I had this vision. I'm going to tell you all about it. And the first chunk of the book of Revelation is these letters to the seven churches. And I find this really interesting um, because it is definitely not the part that people pay attention to. So Revelation chapters 2 and 3... Are messages to these specific churches, which are kind of all over the the Roman Empire. Um, so these are churches, Christian communities that are not like in Jerusalem, like in the heart of where Christianity got started, but places like Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira. So these are various sort of outposts where the church has been planted. And if we think about this kind of period in the early church, this is where Christianity has begun to spread beyond its initial Jewish followers and is now becoming a more Gentile religion, meaning non-Jewish people who are becoming Christian.
0: In a lot of, for modern day view, a lot of these were actually in Turkey, where nowadays so it kind of just shows how far christianity is starting to spread out at that point
1: yeah absolutely yeah so what in uh like if you have a a study bible with maps in it it might be called like asia minor that's modern day turkey mostly and these these seven churches because revelation is really big on numbers and the symbolism of numbers so seven is a number that represents completeness right like the 7 days of creation or rather 6 days plus a day of rest so the 7 churches are 7 specific communities but they also kind of represent all of the christian communities right because there are 7 of them and 7 is symbolic the reason that i wanted to take a little time to talk about the letters is because they really do give us a clue as to the purpose of this book they get skipped over because they don't have a lot of like cool, scary imagery in them, right? This is not the sun turning to blood and the stars falling out of the sky. This is kind of just like, hey, church, get your shit in order. But that's really what the book is about, is it is meant for Christian communities to encourage them in some cases, to yell at them in some cases, to kind of kick them in the ass, because not every Christian community is is doing as well as it should be. So if you read uh, these, these messages to the different churches, they kind of have a different, some of them have a different tone. The first one is the church in Ephesus, and the author says, like, I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance. So, like, Ephesus is doing pretty good. It's like, you are really doing the hard work. You're doing a good job. Keep it up. Uh, don't, don't fall down. Whereas some of the other ones, It's not as positive. So, I know your works. You have a name of being alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen what remains. For I have not found your works perfect in the sight of my God. Uh, That's at the beginning of chapter three. And my favorite one is the last of the seven, which is the message to the church in Laodicea. It says, I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were either cold or hot, so because you are lukewarm, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. Which, I mean, just first of all, great. Great insult, great imagery, all about it. But also, this one resonates with me because I feel like this is a problem a lot of churches have, especially, like, mainline Protestant churches that I, you know, am familiar with in 21st century America. We're really good at being lukewarm on everything. We're like, yeah, yeah. We think poor people should be taken care of. We think racism is bad, but we're not really going to do anything about it. And so I just love that the Bible's like, I spit you out of my mouth because you're lukewarm. Get hecked.
0: That is some, it is great imagery because it's just like, you know, it's kind of the point, like, you're not really doing anything. What's what's the point of you? Right. Like, you're not, this isn't good. Like, if you were bad, then I could call you out for being bad. If you were good, I obviously praise you, but no, you're just you're just there. You're just taking up space.
1: You're just lukewarm. So good. So these these messages to the seven churches are kind of setting the stage of we have to keep in mind that this cosmic conflict that is gonna play out for most of the rest of the book is meant for these Christian communities to, as I said, in some cases encourage, in other cases challenge Christian communities to kind of live up to their faith, that they need to, they need to kind of rise to the moment, if I can put it that way. So after the the letters to the seven churches, we start to get into the more fantastical visions of Revelation. I'm not going to go through this line by line because we'll be here forever. I did a Bible study on Revelation at my last church and we went through the whole book and it took us, I don't know, like six months. It took forever to get through. We're not going to do that, I promise. But I am going to kind of try to hit the highlights as we go through this book. So the first vision uh, that John sees starting in chapter four is a vision of the heavenly throne room. It starts out by saying there was a door in heaven that stood open John hears a voice, and then it says, At once I was in the Spirit, and there in heaven stood a throne. So this, this is kind of presented as, like, it's not a dream. It is sort of a, I don't know, like, out-of-body experience? Like, I don't know what you want to call it, but, like, John is saying, like, I was there. I experienced these things in some sort of extra bodily supernatural way. So sees the heavenly throne, which is obviously very amazing. There's a big description of what the heavenly throne room looks like. There are four living creatures uh, around the throne, which have been symbolically associated with the four gospels, which I don't think came specifically from Revelation. Like, I think that was a later thing that was added on, this understanding that the four creatures are the four gospels. So one like a lion, one like an ox, one with a human face, and one like an eagle. And they all have wings, and it says they're all full of eyes, which is terrifying. I love it.
0: It goes back to that angel description we talked about in a few episodes ago, where it's just like, Mm -hmm. angels are terrifying creatures. Yeah,
1: yeah, I love the the biblically accurate angels meme. I just really like that that's a thing that people joke about. But that's what we got here. We've got these these animals. There's a lion with wings and a bunch of
0: eyeballs. And you do see those a lot on stained, like the older churches and stained glass windows. You'll see the lion, the eagle, maybe not with all the eyeballs, but they'll have wings.
1: They will have wings, yeah. And I can't I can't remember off the top of my head which one goes with which gospel, but yeah, that is the tradition that each of the gospels are represented by one of those creatures. What John sees here in Revelation is that these creatures and uh, all of the, there are 24 elders sort of around the throne of God, and everybody is praising God. So they're singing, holy, 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 the Lord God, the Almighty, who was and is and is to come. There are these refrains that kind of recur in the book of Revelation, which are, I think they're meant to be highlighted. Um, these these kind of moments of praise of God are important. And so you kind of have to imagine, like, the the narration stops and the music swells, and it's like, really pay attention to this. And the emphasis, of course, is on, like, the glory and and majesty and power of God. You have the elders fall before the throne and cast their crowns before the throne, which if you are... A kid who grew up listening to contemporary Christian music, that's where the band Casting Crowns got their name, that they are casting their crowns before the throne of God. So this kind of idea of even if you have, like, human earthly power, right? Even if you are an elder who wears a crown, like, you are casting your crown down before God because God is so much greater than any human being. And then... John sees, um, a scroll that is sealed with seven seals, and we're going to talk about this, there are sort of cycles of seven that start to happen. Uh, obviously we already had the seven churches, but now we're going to have seven seals, and then seven trumpets, and then seven bowls, and we'll kind of get into that a little bit. John is weeping, because no one is worthy to open the scroll and look into it. And one of the elders says, don't, don't cry, don't be sad. The Lion of the tribe of Judah, the Root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. This is a, this is a classic, like, Sunday children's sermon question. Who is the Lion of the tribe of Judah? And the the answer is always Jesus. If you get asked a question in a children's sermon, it's it's always Jesus, except for when it's not, and then it's very funny if they say Jesus. This is kind of where the symbolism about Christ um, is going to begin to unfold, which is important. So the first description we get here is of a lion, right? A lion is powerful. Fierce, strong, all of these things that we kind of symbolically associate with lions. But the very next verse, what John sees is a lamb. A lamb standing as if it had been slaughtered. And that lamb is the one who takes the scroll. Revelation is going to do this again and again, where there's this kind of reversal of expectations. John gets told, oh, the lion is worthy. But what he sees is a lamb that has been slaughtered. And these are one and the same, right? They are Christ. And it's important for Revelation to understand that these, these two very different images represent the same being, that the mighty, powerful lion is also the sacrificial lamb, and that actually that sacrificial lamb image is going to be more important than the big, powerful, scary lion. So we start to see that uh, kind of reversal of expectations happen uh, here in Chapter 5.
0: That's just a, you know, it's a really pronounced image, too. You'll see it in a lot of, well, you see it in a lot of churches and descriptions. Like, I know I'll see it, I can't remember what they're called, but the banners that kind of cover the pulpit sometime in churches. Like, it's always the lamb holding, like...
1: The the paraments.
0: That's a weird word do like it
1: mm-hmm.
0: but yeah so you'll see the image of the lamb yeah standing there triumphant
1: yeah and so the all the elders that are there around the throne they start to sing so again we have this kind of pause song of praise uh and they're saying worthy is the Lamb that was slaughtered to receive wealth and power and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing to the one that is seated on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might. So we're going to start to build this image of the lamb who was slain is also victorious. This imagery is going to be important for understanding Revelation because the lamb who died, right, Christ who was killed on the cross, is the triumphant Lord and King. And the Christians who are being persecuted and killed are ultimately going to be victorious. So we see this kind of, it's bad, but it's also good. The other thing that John sees in the heavenly throne room, so the lamb, it, starting in chapter six, the lamb takes the scroll. We've already heard that the lamb is worthy. The scroll has seven seals. And so the seals are going to be opened, broken one by one. And I'm again, we're not going to go through every bit of this, but we are going to see what happens with each seal being broken, and it's some of this scary shit that starts to happen. So the first four seals, each one brings one of those four horsemen that have had such a, like, wonderful impact on pop culture. So the four horsemen of the apocalypse show up as those four seals are broken. When the fifth seal is broken, John sees the the martyrs. Again, in the Heavenly Throne Room, John sees... Under the altar, the souls of those who had been slaughtered for the word of God and for the testimony they had given, they cried out with a loud voice, Sovereign Lord, how long will it be before you judge and avenge our blood? They were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer. So this is, you know, if if you're living in the midst of your fellow Christians being brutally murdered for their faith, John is saying, those those martyrs those those christians are with god in the heavenly throne room and they're being told like rest right like you've done your you went through your shit you rest and just wait because god is going to bring this to its proper conclusion the sixth seal is when we start to see crazy stuff happening in the sky the sun and the moon and the stars and Just when we think, like, this is, like, the big dramatic moment, right, six out of seven, then we take a break. We don't get to see the seventh seal be broken. There's kind of this, like, interlude that happens. And even once the seventh seal is broken, which doesn't happen until chapter eight, we don't ever get to see what's on the scroll, So you're kind of set up for like, oh my gosh, what's on the scroll? It's so important and no one's worthy except for the lamb. And then we have these seals and it's like drama, 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 building. When the seventh seal is broken, there's just silence. It says there was silence in heaven for half an hour. And then we don't find out what's on the scroll, which is kind of what my husband would call a fuck the audience joke, which is when you you get exactly the opposite of what you were expecting. Because the scroll is not really the focus. So there is kind of a subversion of what you're expecting uh, as you're reading this.
0: It's like a Chekhov's gun. Mm-hmm. So in acting, like the Chekhov's gun, if you see a gun in a scene, like you have to use it. It's not gonna be there for you can't just have it there for no reason. Yeah. But then it's the opposite of that. It's not given you what it's in there. So it's just like the what what what? That's not a thing? Yeah.
1: Yeah, and you're left wondering, like, wait, but what was on the scroll? And it never tells us. Instead, as soon as the scroll has been opened, John sees seven angels with seven trumpets. And that's where the attention kind of turns to. People who have tried to, like, decode the book of Revelation, especially people who are like, I'm going to use this to calculate the actual end of the world, which is happening in 1852 or whatever, Folks love to use all of this, the stuff with the seals and the trumpets, and and to try to plot out these events in actual human history. So you look at wars and famines and astrological events and natural disasters, and you try to sort of decode what this is about. None of that is the point of Revelation. That's not why it was written. That's not how it was written but one of the things that i read in a commentary that was helpful for me is that you should actually think of these sevens as being cyclical so rather than oh there are seven seals which represent these seven events and then seven trumpets which represent seven new events it's actually kind of cyclical so it's like okay the seals you go through seven of them Then there's Seven Trumpets, and it's kind of looping back on itself that we're still really talking about the same stuff, the same cosmic and historic battle that's happening. So it's less about, can I map this on to events in human history, and more about what is this showing us of what God is up to behind the scenes, sort of the divine conflict, the the cosmic battlefield that human beings aren't privy to, and where all this stuff is going on, it's kind of all happening simultaneously, if that makes sense.
0: It does and it doesn't.
1: Right. I mean, that's revelation. It does and it doesn't. Absolutely. So as the trumpets are being blown, bad stuff is happening. Again, we're not going to go through all of it. We get these declarations of woe, woe, woe to the inhabitants of the Earth. Stars are falling from heaven, et cetera, et cetera. You start to see um, some imagery that's pretty reminiscent of the, the plagues in Exodus, or the, um, actually in Hebrew, the word for it is signs, right? The signs of God's power, which is like the locusts and uh, blood and fire and these kinds of things that happen. So we see some echoes of that because, obviously, the God who led the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt, is the same God who is going to preserve the Christians in Revelation. You start to see how uh, these events are reverberating in the human sphere. So this is where we, we do see kind of the impact of this cosmic fight that's going on, that there are armies and wars happening and disasters Again, if you're living through this period in history, right? It's the first century, you're a Christian who's being persecuted, you're seeing people get martyred around you, you're seeing these emperors do, like, wild and terrible things. It's contextualizing all of that. And it's saying, this isn't just about Nero and his wives and his weird, like, vendettas. This is actually just reflecting what's happening on the divine level, right? That the reason these things are happening to you is because God is fighting the forces of evil. And it is is bad, is bad right now to be a part of this conflict. After the trumpets, again, we get to, we get through six trumpets and then we don't really get to see the last trumpet. There's kind of, again, a sort of interruption of the expected pattern which I think is meant to show that you're still in the midst of it, right? The end of the story hasn't been written. So you don't get to see the kind of final pieces that are being hinted at, if that makes sense. Uh, how how are we doing, Josh? Is your head spinning yet?
0: It's a little weird. And I know I, I say that a lot. But, you know, I want to contribute more in this conversation. But I just get so overwhelmed and confused with Revelation. And I know everybody does, but yeah.
1: Yeah, and it's tough, too, because, like, if you, if you have a good study Bible and you look at those notes, it'll kind of decode a lot of this stuff and talk about, like, oh, well, this is referencing this or this is symbolizing that. But, yeah, it's a lot. It's a lot to wade through. And so I am kind of trying to do, like, the broad brushstrokes of, like, what are the big themes? Uh, But, yeah, it's a lot. It's a very weird book. Okay, I'm gonna skip ahead a little bit. I'm gonna skip down to chapter 12 because this is where we start to see some of the, like, mythology that has influenced a lot of pseudo-biblical understanding. So, for example, we've talked before about Paradise Lost and how Paradise Lost has really shaped how people read the creation stories in Genesis. Paradise Lost starts with Lucifer rebelling and falling from heaven. And I remember when I, when I read Paradise Lost in, like, my high school English class, being like, well, where, where is this in the Bible? Because I can look at Genesis, and there, it doesn't start with a war in heaven. Well, the war in heaven is actually in Revelation chapter 12. It's at the end of the whole Bible. And Milton, to write Paradise Lost borrows imagery in Revelation that is not meant to be like, oh, all of this happened before the Garden of Eden. This is the cosmic conflict at the end of the Bible. Anyway, there's a woman who is pregnant and, like, at the point of giving birth. She is kind of being attacked by a dragon, and she's, she's protected. She's kind of whisked away to a place where she can be taken care of. This is probably in some way symbolizing, like, the, the people of Israel who are under threat. If you look at the whole Hebrew Bible, they're kind of under threat, but they are protected by God, they're led through the wilderness, they're brought to a safe place, and then, symbolically, the people of Israel give birth to a child who probably symbolizes Christ. So then a war breaks out in heaven. You have Michael, who's the head of the, the archangels, fighting against this dragon. The dragon is thrown down. In Revelation chapter 12, 9, it says, The great dragon was thrown down. That ancient serpent, who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world, he was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. So this is the kind of imagery of, like, the fall of Lucifer, it's, yeah, it's not really the way that most people have been told that story.
0: Yeah, because it's, you hear that Paradise Lost kind of representation, and you're like, okay, so that would have happened when would have Satan or Lucifer been cast out of heaven and all that? And it's just like, well, what what, what specific time in the Bible? Because the serpent's there in the beginning, but Lucifer wouldn't have fallen yet because, according to that, like, that whole belief is that it was almost jealousy of the humans, like, hey, we're the perfect ones, why do they get away with everything? Why do they get everything? That doesn't fit. Yeah. At the end of the Bible then.
1: Exactly. And I, you know, I think part of it, too, is like what is described in Revelation is not actually it does not present an angel of God who rebels. Like, it says the dragon and his angels fought against Michael and his angels, but the word angel in the Bible just means a messenger and, and sort of a, you know, otherworldly messenger. But if I could put it this way, like not all angels are good angels, right? If you just take it as being sort of a, a morally neutral title, that there can be angels who work for God and there can be angels who work for the devil. And it's not necessarily like a, a betrayal from within God's household if that makes sense like the the devil who is a dragon has his own foot soldiers and they are fighting in heaven and they are thrown out they're cast down to the earth so again there is a cosmic conflict happening there is a battle in heaven it is going to start to have ramifications for people living here on the earth where we all live because if satan is thrown down to earth He's gonna start causing shit down here, and that is exactly what uh, Revelation is describing. We get a lot of imagery that I think is pretty similar to Daniel, like the weird beasts that show up in Daniel. So in Revelation 13, a beast rises out of the sea. This sounds very much like Daniel 7. It's got ten horns and seven heads, and the horns have ten diadems and blasphemous names— It was like a leopard, but with feet like a bear's and a mouth like a lion. These kind of, like, crazy Frankenstein monster images. It's very funny to look up, like, Christian art that has tried to depict these things literally. Because it's a mess. Like, it's got a lion's mouth but ten horns on seven heads, so like, are there seven lion's mouths? I don't know. It doesn't make sense. It's not meant to make sense. Much like the beast in Daniel, you know, we can kind of decode uh, the beast and the heads and the horns, like, they they're meant to represent things in the first century context, in the same way that, like, in Daniel we had, okay, this is talking about Greece and the different kings and the, you know, line of succession and all of that. Similar kind of thing here. This is also, chapter 13 is where we get the mark of the beast. The mark of the beast is another thing that I think has really kind of captured people's imaginations in a way that is unhelpful. So it's very, I feel like this comes up, like, every couple of months or every couple of years, there's, like, a new thing that is the mark of the beast, right? Like, oh, if you get the new smartphone, like, that's the mark of the beast. Or you get your COVID vaccine, that's the mark of the beast. That was a real thing people were saying, like, in the height of the pandemic was, like, if you get the vaccine, you're getting the mark of the beast. What?
0: No, that doesn't make any sense at all. Like, how does this...
1: It, it doesn't. It, yeah, it's some nonsense. Uh, Revelation is not talking about vaccines. Also, you don't understand vaccines. Like, <laughs> get it together. Uh. I like that. And we, we did talk last time about the, the number of the beast, 666. And, you know, Revelation says, let anyone with understanding calculate the number of the beast, for it is the number of a person. That person, probably Emperor Nero. That's the the way to decode that part of it. But bigger picture, what's going on here is this idea of, like, whose mark are you wearing? Which is a sign of, like, where is your allegiance? So I am not a sports person, but, Josh, people who are into the sports ball tend to wear their team colors, right? If you go to a game, mm-hmm. whose mark... Are you wearing?
0: Yeah, usually it's I'm wearing the bear logo of the Minnesota Wild or the Iowa Wild because that's my team. That's who I support in hockey. But yeah, I mean it's always got this marker, this this icon that's eye-catching, but yep. You know yep. exactly what it is. Like
1: Yeah. Because I'm in Southern California, like Dodgers Blue, that might as well be a cult. Like, sorry, Dodgers fans, y'all are way too into Your baseball team. I once went to a Dodgers game. I don't know why. I went to a Dodgers game. I was invited. And the Dodgers were not even playing. This is like me exposing my lack of sports knowledge, but I guess that's not a secret. They're like, their big rivalry is with the Giants, I think. And they, this game, they were not playing the Giants, but somebody showed up to Dodgers Stadium all decked out in Giants gear. And like, there was almost a physical fight that started in the stands. And this guy got escorted out because they were like, you're going to be beaten within an inch of your life if you come strutting in here in the wrong team colors.
0: Well, it's true. Cause, you know, I'll be at the Iowa Wild games and I'll see people with opposing jerseys. And it's just like, you came here. <laughs> Excuse you? Like, what is your problem? Like, what's my problem? (laughs) Why am I getting so worked up? Like, they they live in a different area. Yeah, right. That's why they like that team. Or they have poor taste, like.
1: (laughs) Or they they just weren't raised right, Josh.
0: That's a, yeah, that's fair.
1: But in Revelation, this idea of, like, the mark of the beast is, the, the question is really, do you have the mark of the beast or do you have the mark of Christ? And you know, at least in, in our tradition in the Lutheran church, and I think this is, is shared with most most other mainline Protestant churches, you know, when we baptize someone, we literally mark the sign of the cross on their forehead. And the language that we use in the Lutheran church in the liturgy is like, you've been sealed with the cross of Christ, and that theologically and like eschatologically, you have that mark on you forever right? You have been marked with the cross of Christ. You are sealed with his seal. And by contrast in Revelation, the people who are opposed to God and God's people have this other mark. They have the mark of the beast. So it's a question of like, which team's color are you wearing? Are you team Jesus or are you team beast? And I think, you know, there's, that's obviously very binary. Like, are you in or are you out? But I think it's also kind of a a little bit of a challenge to people who might think they're neither, right? In In the mindset of revelation, you can't be a neutral bystander. It's like either you're all in, sign of Jesus, or you are working against God's purposes. And so, you know, that's so that's a question, I think, that the Book of Revelation is asking. is like, really, whose, whose mark are you wearing? Whose side are you on? We are going to, I swear, pick up the pace, because this is going on forever. <laughs> I'm I'm really trying to go quick, but there's just so much in here.
0: It's it's a crazy book. It has a lot of intricate stories that, well, if you don't cover this, then it's not going to make sense to finish off this part.
1: Yeah, yeah. And there's a lot of imagery that has become well-known, at least in, like, Christian culture. So, for example, like, the the hymn, the Battle Hymn of the Republic, which became really big, like, during the Civil War era. One of the verses is, like, tramping out the vintage where the Grapes of Wrath are stored, which is also where the title, The Grapes of Wrath, that novel comes from. Both of those are referencing back to Revelation. I think it's Revelation 15, no, 14, of like the grapes of God's wrath and like you're pressing the grapes of God's wrath and it's making this, you know, this wine. So there's a lot of references to Revelation that have kind of entered popular culture. Chapter 15 and then into 16, we then get another cycle of seven. So we had seven seals, we had seven trumpets, then we have seven bowls. So seven angels come out, they have seven bowls and the bowls are full of the wrath of God. And they are pouring out these plagues. So, again, very reminiscent of the plagues of the book of Exodus sores appearing on people, the sea becoming like blood, the rivers becoming like blood, the sun scorching people with fire, darkness. Like, there's a lot of echoes of of the same things that happen in Exodus. And again, this is meant to sort of be cyclical. It's not like the seven bulls come chronologically after the seven trumpets. It's like all of this shit is sort of happening simultaneously. In chapter 16, we do get a reference to Armageddon. Armageddon, again, is one of those words that has just kind of come to signify disaster, right? Like, end of the world, bad shit. Asteroid crashing into the Earth.
0: Get Ben Affleck on the phone.
1: Yeah! Get get Ben Affleck on the phone, send a mining team to space (laughs) for some reason armageddon you know but actually armageddon is is a reference to a place in hebrew har megiddo means like the the mount or the hill known as megiddo which is a real place like armageddon has become this very abstract term but in revelation it's literally like hey the place where the armies are gonna meet it's that hill you know uh, it's called Megiddo. It's north of Jerusalem. Like, that's the place.
0: It sounds like a delicious dish.
1: Harmegiddo. It does sound, sounds fun. I like that word. Okay, some more crazy shit happens. We have, we start talking about Babylon. Uh, and I think I mentioned, or I referenced last episode, the whore of Babylon. In in the same way that Daniel used Babylon to stand in for the Greek kingdom. Revelation uses Babylon to stand in for Rome, but really Babylon comes to symbolize any and every empire that is opposed to God. So any empire could be Babylon. Babylon is now just sort of this stand-in for the earthly powers that are not aligned with God and that are causing harm to God's people. So yeah, it's, it's very, very symbolic. And then we, as we get towards the, the kind of final few chapters of the book, we see the inevitable conclusion of this conflict. So there's a cosmic war, God is fighting the forces of evil, it is spilling over onto the human plane with wars and persecutions and plagues and bad things happening, but what is the end result, right? If you are living through all of this shit, what is on the horizon, right? Like, what's going to be the end of the story? I'm kind of reminded of in Lord of the Rings, do you remember the Battle of Helm's Deep? Where they're like, they're trying to hold this, this fort and the enemy forces are just like unrelenting and they keep coming and they keep coming and they keep coming. But like Gandalf is off on his little side quest and he's like, wait for the dawn of, I think it's the third day. Sorry, Lord of the Rings nerds. But, like, wait for my return, and then, like, they're just barely hanging on, and then the sun rises on the last day, and here's Gandalf showing up to, like, save everybody, because he's brought the the Rohirrim, or whatever. I haven't watched Lord of the Rings, or read Lord of the Rings in a I'm long a bad time. I'm
0: nerd. I didn't really care for Lord of the Rings, at first. Like, I... <laughs> now like i'm interested in it the older i get i'm like yeah no i should actually take time and and read it or or watch the movies again but yeah back then i was like i have no patience for this give me give me action like i don't want to yeah sit through six hours of walking
1: yeah and and like controversial opinion the movies like peter jackson was so faithful to the books, and, like, those adaptations, I mean, people just love them, and then they'll watch, like, the extended director's edition that's, like, an additional three hours. Honestly, I think the books are the way to go. Because, like, your ass is gonna fall asleep if you sit through all those movies. Like, they're too long. Right. Sorry, Peter Jackson. Sorry, Lord of the Rings nerds.
0: We respect you, but...
1: (laughs) Please don't come after me. You're very scary. Right?
0: We see you, we love you, but just not for us
1: yeah so anyway the reason I bring this up is because I think this is kind of the energy that revelation is bringing here that things seem so 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 bad and so desperate and like you're barely hanging on but you know that when the sun comes up on that last day Gandalf is going to show up and everything's going to be okay because that is just like how the story has to end You know, no matter how bad it gets for Frodo trying to get the ring to Mordor, he has to win. He has to succeed in the end. And, like, the cost is great, but, like, it's going to happen. That is the kind of vibe that Revelation has. And honestly, like, Tolkien knew all of these stories. Like, he knew this shit. So, like, really, it's the other way around. Like, Lord of the Rings stole from Revelation. That's what I'm saying. Right. I have come hard for the Lord of the Rings fandom on this one. I'm okay with it. I did not expect that.
0: I support your decisions. Thank you. I appreciate you. Anytime.
1: So the end of the story, the resolution of the conflict is certain. God is going to win. And for the book of Revelation, that is never, ever, ever in question. Things are very bad and Christians are getting martyred and revelation is kind of saying like Christians are probably going to keep getting martyred but God is going to triumph in the end without fail. And so we kind of uh, we get to that resolution as we get into like chapter 18 where there is this like declaration of like Babylon the Great has fallen. The we go back to the elders before the throne and everyone's praising God because like God's going to win. God is going to triumph. And then in Revelation 19, the one of the angels, because John has been sort of, like, conversing with various angels throughout this book, and they're, like, telling him what's going on. And so one of the angels says, Write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. There's a new horse that appears, not the four horsemen from earlier, but this is... There is a new horse. Its rider is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His name is called the Word of God. And so, again, this, like, triumphant image of Christ is going to show up, win the day. But again, the, the triumphant warrior is also the lamb, the, the sacrificial, weak creature. These are one and the same. The dragon gets bound and thrown into a pit. There is this period of a thousand years, which gets, like, way spun out in the Left Behind books, and this idea of, like, millennial Christians, not like we're millennials, but Christians who are obsessed with this idea of the thousand-year, like, period, the millennium. Are we currently in the millennium, or is the millennium the next thing that's gonna happen? And it's like, you're not you're not reading Revelation thoughtfully, like, that's not, that's not what it's about. The point is, Christ is going to conquer, and this may kind of happen in stages that even after the dragon has been locked away, things may still be bad. There may still be trials and tribulations. But I wanted to kind of really pause and focus on the final chapter, final two chapters of Revelation. Revelation 21 and 22 are super important. And they do have a lot of beautiful imagery that has been absorbed into Christian language and Christian, like, worship. But I think similar to why people skip over the letters to the seven churches at the beginning, by the time you get to the last two chapters of the book, it's like, oh, all the cool fighting is over, right? Like, again, I'm going to drag Lord of the Rings again. In the, the final Lord of the Rings movie, there are like seven endings, and it keeps like fading to black, and you're like, oh, the movie's over, and then there's another ending. And that is kind of how Revelation feels that like all the cool action has ended, and then it's like, now we're gonna fade back in and show you this other stuff, and you're like, man, just roll the credits. I've been sitting here for too long. I
0: have to pee so bad.
1: I have to pee so bad. <laughs> yes. But the Vision at the end of Revelation is really important because this is what it is all building towards. This is the hope. This is, like, literally the light at the end of the tunnel for people who are going through all this bad shit in uh, the early Christian church. Or really, like, any, any period of human suffering, like, whether it's global or individual, like, if you are going through some bad shit, what is the hope That you are hanging on to and that's really where revelation ends is on this hope so i want to say a couple things about this i have been talking for i think a literal hour and i apologize but yeah we're almost we're almost there we're in sight of the end revelation 21 john says i saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more and i saw the holy city the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, see, the home of God is among mortals. He will dwell with them as their God. They will be his peoples and God himself will be with them. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Mourning and crying and pain will be no more for the first things have passed away beautiful, beautiful, beautiful imagery. This is one of those passages that is often read at a funeral service, right? This promise of, like, death and mourning and crying and pain will be ended, right? That there's this promise that the the worst stuff that we have to live through is not permanent. But the other thing that I think is really important here is that the new Jerusalem comes down out of heaven to earth. And so if you have this kind of imagination of like what is the the end times gonna be i think a lot of christian practice and theology has been built around this idea that earth is temporary right That like who cares if we fuck up the climate and like poison the oceans and all of this stuff because like we're going somewhere else and for some christians like that is a very deliberate connection that they make that they're like It doesn't matter if we pump all the oil out of the earth and poison ourselves with it because, like, we're going somewhere else. We're going away. But actually, Revelation says the opposite. Revelation says that God is going to come down to us. And it's not the only place in the New Testament that uses this kind of language. But, like, God is going to dwell among mortals. The New Jerusalem is coming down out of heaven we're not going over there, it's coming here. And there is this promise of, like, renewal, a recreation, a new heaven and a new earth, and a restoration of things, but it's not all the good people getting plucked up and taken away to heaven. It's actually God and heaven coming down to earth, which I think is a really important reversal of how we typically think about it. The other thing I want to kind of highlight is this description of the New Jerusalem. It's enormous. It's ridiculously huge. Like people have calculated, because it says it's like a it's a cube that is fifteen hundred miles on every side, and it's like that. The geometry of it makes no sense. Uh, But it's you know it's meant to be over the top. It's exaggerated. The the whole city is, like, made of crystal and precious stones and, like, pure gold and, again, just, like, very, very over the top. There are 12 gates of 12 pearls. So this is where the pearly gates image comes from, that this heavenly city actually has 12 gates made of pearl. But again, in, like, a reversal of what we normally think of, we think of the pearly gates as being, like, the checkpoint, right? Right. That, like, you die, and you go to the pearly gates, and then, like, St. Peter looks to see if your name is on the guest list. Like, are you allowed in or not? But here's what Revelation says. The city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God is its light, and its lamp is the Lamb. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. Its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no night there. In other words, the gates never close. The The New Jerusalem, this holy city, is a 24-hour operation. The gates never close. They are permanently open, right? Which, if you think about the ancient world and, like, the original audience of Revelation had lived through Jerusalem being besieged and conquered and the temple destroyed by the Romans— second temple because the babylonians destroyed the first one like people had literally lived through the the sacking of jerusalem and now we get this vision of a city where they never have to close the gates because there is no threat right no army is ever going to lay siege to this city it is permanently open and that that's a vision of like safety and also also a vision of like welcome right? Because it says all the, the nations are going to come to this place. So there's no longer like good guys and bad guys, insiders and outsiders, like cities just open. Everybody can come, which I think is rad. We get vision of like a river of water of life um, and this tree of life in the center of the city, which is clearly, you know, mirroring the Garden of Eden and the tree that was in the garden. I also love the tree in Revelation because it says the tree has twelve kinds of fruit, producing its fruit each month. So again, abundance, right? There's never going to be a lean season. There's never going to be a time when you can't get enough. But also, it is it is a fruit of the month tree. (laughs) It it has twelve kinds of fruit, one for every month. I just really like that there's a fruit of the month club tree. That's really in Revelation. So anyway, the, the, like, vision that Revelation promises, I think, is really beautiful. It says, like, let everyone who is thirsty come. Let anyone who wishes take the water of life as a gift. The leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. So again, it's kind of like, this is for everyone. This is not just for the Jews. It's not just for the Christians. It's for the world. And, like, the whole world is going to be healed and restored in this end of the story. So it's really beautiful, and it also, I think, really balances the scary shit in Revelation that we do tend to focus on. And it kind of gives us a different emphasis on, like, what is God's end goal here? Because I think the point of Revelation is not that God wants people to suffer and, like, wants to sort out all the bad people and throw them into a lake of fire. The actual end point is things are good. There's, like, healing and abundance and safety and, you know, everything brought together. And that's really, like, what Revelation is driving towards. So that's way, way too much for me. Josh, please help us bring this home. Where, where should we end our, our thoughts on Revelation?
0: Well, I think we should end it with the last verses of Revelation itself. So this is chapter 22, verses 20 and 21. The one who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all the saints. Amen. Jenny, thank you so much.
1: Thank you, Josh. Thank you for putting up with a, uh, a frankly Peter Jackson-esque episode of this podcast
0: (laughs) but better because i get to talk to you so it even all works out
1: thank you i appreciate that very good for my ego hopefully this was interesting for folks i think revelation is very different from how people imagine it although it does have all that crazy shit that you've heard mostly uh all of that is in there but it's a cool book and it's not uh what we typically think it is so Thank you for your patience. Thank you for listening. Josh, thank you for the real housewives of Roman history uh, that we did last episode.
0: Absolutely. I I do like history. I should actually put effort in.
1: Uh, You did. It was great.
0: All right, everyone. Thank you for listening. We'll be back. And this has been a Reverend Bible Talk. Thanks. Thanks for listening to a Reverend Bible Talk. You can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts or find us at soundcloud.com slash bible. And remember, just like Balaam and his donkey learned, sometimes even God communicates through a talking ass.